were discipled. How many of you literally yourself was discipled by someone? It really took you through a discipleship program. One, two, three, four. Four, five maybe? Okay. See, that's the problem. We're not reproducing disciples. I mean, a lot of us went to Sunday school. We heard a lot of stories, but we really weren't poured into. Um, it has been just our joy. You know, Pastor Phil wrote this, this material many years ago, and I don't know how many, seriously, I think hundreds of people that I've literally one-on-one taken through this material. And uh, I just want to share a quick story with you. When, uh, when we were at the new conference, um, many of you women were there, some of you men were there to help. Toward the end of my message, I said something like, I want to take you to the throne room. And I had the women close their eyes, and we sang a song. We just literally kind of, I, I tried to get you to Revelation 4 to that picture of the throne room and to be there and to let his presence come and to show you new and this and that. And there was a gal there. I didn't know her. They visited our church a few times. And she said, Tammy, she said, I was sitting there and I was trying so hard to get there. And she said, it was as if I was in quicksand and I couldn't get there. And it scared me. It scared me because I know I'm a believer, but I realize I don't know any of this stuff. I don't know what it means to be filled with the Spirit. I don't know what it means to be discipled. And so she sends me all of this in an email. And she said, um, do you think that you could coach me? I think I need a life coach. You said you're a life coach. Do you think you could coach me? So I set up a meeting. We met in the coffee house, and she began to tell me her story. And she said, do you think you could coach me? And I said, no, but I would love to disciple you. I would love to sit down and take you through the fundamentals of the basic faith. I know you understand what it means to be a believer, but maybe there's some things you don't even understand with that. And so we are on week four. Um, They are coming to our church. They haven't missed a Sunday. She, her husband, her kids, she is on fire for God. I am having so much fun just listening to her stories and all God's showing her with a revelation of what God's doing. So what I really want to encourage you guys to do tonight, and I mean, I don't, I don't know how more strongly I can do it, is to say everyone in here needs to do this, and I feel very compelled to do that. That tonight we actually have some sign-up sheets, um, and on that sheet is a couple things. One, it is about discipleship, and the other is about our house of prayer, which Pastor Phil will tell you more about. But everybody listen, because I feel very strongly about this. I'm going to ask you to consider, after tonight, discipling someone. That means you really do pick up a book, and tonight we have extra books, and they're going to just be half price tonight for someone that you feel you want to disciple. It is worth the $10 or whatever it is to sit down, and you can actually, I think it's always a good idea to let your disciple buy their book unless you want to buy it for them and you feel led to do that. But they have a, they have a, a vested interest in it you know, when they pay for something. They really do. That's just the law of the way it is. When you have to put something in it, you'll put something in it. So um, that's just up to you how you want to do that. But um, tonight we're actually going to sign up, and on that piece of paper is for you to begin to think, who are the five people that you know that if you were to disciple anyone could probably use discipleship? And it may be somebody that's been a friend of yours for years. They may call themselves a Christian. If you don't have a list, I can give you names. We have so many people coming to this church right now that I can think of that probably need to sit down one-on-one and have you walk through the fundamentals of the faith. Now, you've been through this class, so you know. You know a lot of this stuff already, but many of you, this will be the first time you've done it. So what you'll do is you'll just walk them through page one. You'll walk them through salvation. Read, and here's, listen, it's so important. You need to read the scripture. It's not for you to sit down and just tell them the story. It's really important for you to open them up, let them get their Bible, teach them, because remember what we said, they won't be any better disciple than, you're, than you are with them. You need to say, okay, here we are, salvation. And my, you know, my girl, when she sees it, my pages are marked up. I've got notes. I've got all the answers. You don't show up with an empty book, all right? Do your work. And she looks, and I make notes, and there's certain things I want to say about it, and then I'll have her get it. Matter of fact, my girl, Tracy, actually went out and bought the same Bible that I have. You know, um, she asked me this week, she took a picture of it. She goes, I want that Bible, you know, because it makes sense when you read it. When we're in our class together, we can read together. All right. So that's something you might even want to suggest and go through all the verses with them. Highlight it. Certain things you want to say that I say to her so she can see that this means something to me. All right. And what will happen is every time you do somebody, you're going to get better next time around. You're going to have more stories. You're going to have illustrations. You're going to have understanding with salvation, baptism, Lord's Supper, um, stewardship, all the lessons in here. I really believe, guys, I believe everyone in our church needs to be discipled. 
I really do. Because most people don't know what they believe or why they believe it. You know, we've heard, we've said it many times, if someone can talk you into it, someone else can talk you out of it. Know what you believe and why you believe it. They need to be so grounded so they aren't tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine like the Bible says. In the last days, we'll be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Some doctrine's going to come along and they're going, I don't know, maybe I do need to be baptized. They won't know what the Word of God says. Maybe I really don't need to be saved. Maybe salvation is through works. So I'm going to encourage you tonight, and, that, and when we take our break, we're going to ask you to turn those sheets into us. We're going to ask you to pick up a discipleship book for someone, and then I want to go so far as to ask you to shoot me an email or a text or on Sunday come up to me and say, hey, just want you to know I took the challenge, and I, were, I met with my disciple, or I contacted my disciple, or we're going to start meeting next week. Um, because I believe we need some accountability to that. So I'd like to see out of this class, us at least have 30 to 40 people starting in the next week or two going through the discipleship material. Fair enough? How many feel you, you know somebody right now that you could take through discipleship? I know right now we've, a couple of you are already, okay, come on, I need more hands. Come on, some of you, now don't lie. <laughs> All right? Because I think if I pressure you a little, you'll be glad you did. Okay, you'll be glad you did. All righty, everybody good? Everybody excited about tonight? All right, so we've got those forms. Um, Nathan, okay, everybody ready? Thursday night, Thursday night. Everybody going to be here? You, you don't want to miss it. It's going to be amazing. And then um, before, at break time, if I could get um, about three or four men to help John, we can get that cross and that thing off of the, um, if you'll see, uh, John, we just need to move a couple pieces of furniture off of the, the stage. Okay, all right, Nathan? I'm going to ask you guys now. Seriously, I'm going to ask you. Well, hey, guys, just a couple of housekeeping things in terms of school and ministry. If you have not signed up yet for the next class, um, you can do that tonight. You can do it online if you'd rather do it online, but we will have a computer designated at the break and afterwards for signing up for this next class, okay? We also have books right outside behind this, uh, the, the roll-up door. It's just on the other side. If you haven't picked up your books for the next class, be sure to do that. And I know a lot of you have been asking, when is the next class actually going to start because of South Africa? And we've pushed it back to March 3rd, okay? So we're going to be t- taking that class from March 3rd through April 7th. That's going to run us back-to-back with our next, uh, our next section that starts up as well. So just so you know, uh, March 3rd is when the next class is going to begin. Um, Tonight, I'm going to talk to you guys about the community of the army. And I want to read from 2 Timothy, it says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 3, you therefore must endure hardship as a good good soldier of Jesus Christ. And there's so many different, uh, different avenues that we could go down when we're talking about the army of God and about being a part of that. We could talk about spiritual warfare, um, and, and that certainly is a huge component of it. It's one of the reasons why we need each other, uh, so that we can be praying for each other and be holding each other up. But there's something, there's something about the army that happens, um, and I want to talk more about the communal side of the army. You have all these random people who show up, and I'm now I'm talking about like U.S. military. You have all these random people that show up together in the same location, and they're all embarking on the same mission together. And they know that it's going to be hard work. They're told it's going to be hard work. They've heard stories about how hard it really is. They've probably seen the movies to know how hard it is, and yet they sign up to be a part of this thing anyway. They want to serve their country. They want to serve their people, and they decide at some point in their life that it's worth all the hardship. It's worth going through that in order to, uh, to be able to say that they're a part of the military, to say that they are a part of protecting this country and the, the people in this country. And so they get there, and if you're a part of the army, there's, there's three things that you do before graduation. They break it into different colors. I believe it's red, white, and then blue. And uh, these are the, the three different modes of basic training. And the first is you get educated. You get told about what the army is. Uh, basically, in the next phase, that's when you start to learn how to use arms, um, start firing machine guns and, and stuff like that. And then in the third stage, that's where you get up into the heavy machinery as well. And you're being trained all the while for warfare. You're being trained all the while alongside these soldiers, some of who are dropping out, some of who are pushing through with you, but you're being trained up to do something. It's to fight warfare, and it's to, to live in the community, in the communal context of the, the, the military together. 
And eventually, many of, of the people that serve in our armed forces, of course, they get shipped overseas, and then together they fight, and together they die. And there's something so beautiful about that picture that they, they sign up to do something. They, they sign away their life, in essence, for the sake of another, for the sake of each other. And they stand by each other, and they fight together. And they stand by each other, and they die together. No man left behind, Right? And yet they, they, they do this so willingly that they would lay down their life for one another. And in this, we see such a beautiful picture, really, of who Christ is also. That what Christ tells us friendship looks like and that love looks like is um, that we would lay down our lives for one another. And when you said yes to Jesus, you signed up to be a part of, a, of an army. You signed up to be a part of a community that would fight together, You sign up to be a part of a community that would live together. And you sign up to be a part of a community that would die together, but unto eternal life. And so brothers and sisters and uh, co-laborers in this this army, we need each other to do that. Can you imagine if... uh, if one person showed up at basic training and they sent that one person out after training them to go and fight the war alone. They'd be a sitting duck. They go with large numbers. They go in power. Uh, unless it's a co-op mission, then they're sneaky. And they can't have big groups. But you see the point. If they were going to go and fight an offense on some, some coastline, they would take in all the, ch- all the tanks, all the helicopters, um, huge hordes of people, and, and they would fight together. They would fight in numbers. They wouldn't be fighting alone because they would be a sitting duck if they did that. And so we have a responsibility. It's something that we get to do as a, as a part of God's body of believers is that we get to fight with one another. We get to stand up next to one another. This world is hard. And Satan is a, he is a beast, but our God has overcome. And together we get to fight against him through our prayers, through our encouragement, through our love. And in the context of community, we get to do this. And so if you're not a part of our community groups yet, if you haven't signed up for that, please, please, please do that. You're not meant to fight this war alone. Let's pray. Spirit of God, we thank you that you have called us into this army, into this, this military, that we get to be a part of, uh, of your kingdom, the kingdom that has already overcome, the kingdom that wins and wins again. And Christ, we thank you that you are your commander-in-chief. You're the one who, um, who laid, down your, laid down your life already. And you're the one who shows us what it looks like to fight in this war together. And so would you um, continue to encourage us through your example and continue to instill love in our hearts for one another that we would continue to stand up and fight with each other alongside one another for your glory, God. Be blessed during this time, Jesus. Again, you are our rabbi. You are our teacher. And we come here, each one of us, your disciple, to learn. And so now would you teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Nathan. Well, how's everybody doing? Looks like a few people are dodging us tonight, huh? A few people are staying home and... um, resting, doing whatever they do, good TV show on, I don't know. Um, you know, I want to show you a video. It's, uh, it's related to what we're doing, uh, and I think you'll understand why as soon as you see it, but I, I also believe it's really related to the battle we're in, and there's an immense battle being fought in our world. We recently heard our president uh, tell us something about crusades and how bad Christians are. And uh, I thought it would be helpful for you to get some facts, okay? And I want you to, so this is a five-minute video, but I think it's going to tell you about as much as you need to know right now on the fact of this. Uh, I'm going to give you the reference so you can find it. So here it is, ready to write it down, because you're going to go, where is that? How do I find that? Okay, you go to YouTube. Everybody know what YouTube is? All right. Go to YouTube, and you type in there, Jihad, J-I-H-A-D, versus crusade that's all you have to do and it'll be the it'll typically be the first one that pops up 
and you will uh, be able to find this, access this pretty easily. So uh, just to set this up a little bit, the guy that is uh, actually going to walk you through um, this, he's really taken a look at political Islam, not religious, you know, and just said, let's look at it from a political standpoint. He was a Ph.D. in mathematics. Uh, when 9-11 came, he said, you know, I need to, I need to, I need to understand this. And it wasn't like in his wheelhouse, it wasn't his background, what he had normally studied and been a part of. But he does it through statistics just to show you some of the truth of political Islam. And so that when people say, yeah, but Christians are really bad, they had crusades, you're going to have an answer. Okay? So let's watch this video, five minutes, and I think you're going to get some real eye-opening experiences here. Okay? Don't Don't you love that guy? But wasn't that helpful? Wasn't that helpful? And isn't that totally different than what you've probably been heard or told or challenged with, right? And I, and I really believe, when I, when I thought about this, I thought, how does this fit in? And then I realized it fits in perfectly with what we're doing. Because we are in a battle, aren't we? We are all in a battle. And there has been a jihad waged against us by Satan. That's really what's going on. Everything that happens in the physical world points us to something in the spiritual world that we need to look at, we need to consider, we need to think about what's going on. So I want you right now, I want to just take a minute and and I want us to uh, just kind of close our eyes and I want you right now to, to be able to retrench into a foundation of faith. Can we just do that? Just close your eyes and let's just take a moment right now and I'm going to lead you through something here. Something that, uh, that we all need on a regular basis. And you might just say this in your heart. You don't need to say it out loud. If you want to, you can. But I, I, I just want to kind of walk us through this. Uh, Father, I am yours. I am your child. I have been saved. I have been set apart. And I have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. I am, in your words, a conqueror. In fact, I am more than a conqueror. Because the real battle that was fought was not fought by me. It was fought by you. The victory that I have is the victory I have in you. Forgive me, Father, when I think the battle relies upon my strength, upon my power, upon my authority. I have none. And so right now in this moment, I submit myself to you. I humble myself under the mighty hand of God. And I ask you, Father, to make me strong in the Lord and in the Word. To let me understand the true nature of the battle that I'm engaged in. But Father, just as I am more than a conqueror, Father, I do not have to fall back in despair or defeat. Father, I stand up strong in the Lord and the things of the Lord. Knowing that you have already conquered, that you are the victor, and you you give us the victory. God, the battle we're in, let us see it for what it is. Let us understand that the battle is ultimately a battle of faith. Will we put our faith in us or in you? Will we trust what we see or will we trust what we know? God, thank you for reminders of what's happening in our world politically, but also, God, what's happening in our world spiritually. And we say, God, as you've told us to, thy kingdom come and thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. God, we just open up heaven right now. We just believe, Father, that there is a great overflow of the Spirit of God for every one of us. That there are miracles, there are works and wonders and signs that you are bringing upon your people and upon this place. And God, it's not because we're worthy. It's not because we deserve anything. God, Lord knows we do not. But God, you have blessed us as your children in spite of who we are. And God, we receive that now, Lord Jesus, and we pray that all of us can walk in the power and the strength of the Almighty God. 
putting aside those things that are distractions that keep us from that, uh, from that strong position that we have in Jesus Christ. And we love you, Lord. We thank you for this night. We thank you, God, for the opportunity we have to study your word, to grow strong in the Lord. And may you bless us in all of that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's, uh, let's turn to page uh, 62 in your book. Um, good to see each one of you tonight. I'm glad that you're here. Glad you've made this kind of a commitment to be a part of what God's doing uh, at the School of Ministry. And, you know, as we always say, do not grow weary. Do not grow weary in doing good. Now, I know you come from work, you come from school, you come from all kinds of different situations, and sometimes you think, man, this is, I'm just so tired. I, do, I go, go, go. I know. I know you are. But just know that the Lord will strengthen you for a reason. All right? So let's take our Bibles, and uh, as you have your book open, let's go to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And I believe this is a key passage. Uh, we're dealing in Lesson 8 with dealing with sin. We're going to talk about those things that, that really get in the way of what God wants to do in our life. Is there anyone here that can say that never happens? I mean, you, you never get, you know, nothing gets in the way, nothing distracts you, nothing discourages you. I don't know anybody, Right? Well, what do we do about it? Well, let's just look in our Bibles in verse 1 and listen to what Paul says. Now, you know what I love about Paul? He's got this beautiful combination of strength and humility. It's just a great one, isn't it? It's not just strength, but there's a humility there. The guy who writes, you know, probably 60% of the New Testament is telling us, you know, that um, I am the least of all the apostles. Now, think about that. Here's what he says. Now, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. I mean, just let that sink in. He said, I'm pleading. I'm begging with you. I want you to think about the meekness of Jesus Christ, the gentleness of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes to you, you know how he comes? He doesn't come as an angry warrior. You're his child. He comes with gentleness, and he comes with meekness. And he says, let me just get in your heart. Can I do that? Can I just touch a part of you that maybe I haven't got access to lately? And he goes on to say this, who in the presence, in in whose presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. So so Paul says, you know what? When I come to you in, in the presence, I just want you to know I'm coming in humility. I'm coming in lowliness, right? I'm coming because I I don't want it to be about me. You know, earlier Paul would write these words. He said, I did not come to you in eloquent words of wisdom, but I came to you in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, lest your faith should rest in man and not in God. Do you know that when we put our faith in man, we thwart the purpose of God? We do, don't we? When, and, and that means it doesn't have to be somebody else. It can be me. It can be you, right? I can do that to me. And he's setting us up here. He says, but I beg you that when I am present, I may be bold with confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if walked according to the flesh. So Paul was, was criticized highly. Paul wasn't like, you know, everybody loves Paul. If you ever get into the place to where you think, well, people don't like me or they don't appreciate me, well, join the club, right? Get in line. They didn't like Jesus. Do you really think that you're going to stand strong in a spiritual kingdom and everyone's going to love the story? You know, I love this line from A Tale of Three Kings that says, even God has his critics. Think about that. I mean, think of the criticism. And so, so he's wanting us to, to come to this place. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. All right? Now, he's going to give us a key here. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Oh, there's stuff in my life that God wants to pull down. What is it? Let's let the Spirit of God touch you right now with that. Casting down arguments. You ever argued with God? I have. I mean, I've argued with God. I've even been so bold as to recommend God as a path. 
right? I've even I've even questioned God. Are you are you aware? I know you're busy. Things are going on. There's you got a big world to run around here. Universe, angels going in every direction, right? God, have you ever thought about this? And you know what I I I love about God is that when God hears me like that in my humanity, you know what God does? He just smiles. He just smiles. He just says, yeah, I know, I hear that all the time. But let me show you a better way. He says, so though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. He says, but, but notice what we have here. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That is, they're not physical in nature, and they're not given to, to the, the way you get things done. You know what carnality is? It's, it's getting things done in your own strength. Because there's two different kinds of flesh in the Bible. There's one that kind of keeps the bones all in place, right? It's called our body, this flesh. But there's all this nature, too, that tries to get things done in its own strength. He says, we don't war according to that. Now, what are we going to do? We're going to cast down arguments, every lofty thing or every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So what, what does that mean? That means whenever I put anything um, of my knowledge up against God, I'm, I'm trying to challenge the knowledge of God. I'm trying to help God understand something. He says, just cast that away. Just don't let that be a part of your life. And he goes on to say this. He says, uh, uh, bring every thought into, the capti- into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Wow, you know what that means? That means have the mind of Christ. You know, has your mind ever just kind of run in a million directions? He says, bring it into captivity. Has your mind ever run in the wrong direction? Bring it into captivity. Have you ever just not even thought about God and just tried to live in a vacuum? Bring it into captivity. Bring everything in and, and get it in a place to where you can say, I want to, be, I want to be, really be a controller of my thoughts. Now, why do we say all this? Well, here's what happens. In our life, as we go through life as a Christian, you're going to disciple someone. And you're going to come to now lesson eight, right? So you're almost to the end. Most people that I have discipled have never made it this far. They give up. They kind of throw in the towel. They lose interest about lesson five or six. They just, it's hard to just hang in there. Because really, I mean, if I'm talking about eight lessons here, I'm not typically talking about eight weeks, right? Because you got, the guy didn't get his lesson done, so we're going to reschedule that one. He's on vacation, you know. Um, He's goofing around. He's doing whatever he's doing. So I could literally be, I could be three months into this discipleship by this point, right? Maybe longer. The longest running disciple I had was one year. You know, I wanted to kiss the guy when I got done. I just so sick of seeing him, and I just thought, I'd thank you very much. Can I kiss you goodbye? Right? And so just know that process. So by the time you get to this place, now all of a sudden you get to talk about, hey, what's really going on in your life? How do we work on the stuff? How do we refine you and get you more like Christ? So this lesson might slow down a little bit, and he's going to say something like, you know, why do I have a problem with this? Why is it continual in my life? And you're going to say, you know, it might be a stronghold. Might be something that you've just built up over time, become a habit, and we need to break that down. We need to break it down. I like to use the example of a of a tower, but I've used that one with you before, so I'm going to use that of a chain. So just imagine, you know, if you have a chain, somebody wraps it around your ankle one time, and you can kind of get free, pretty easy, right? And then wrap it again, a little bit harder, a little bit harder, and before long, you've kind of pulled, and it's become knotted around your ankle, and you go, "How did I get here?" How did I get trapped so quickly? Or maybe you go to the elephant stake. You know that story? You know the elephant, the little baby elephant is staked down with a small little stake, and it learns from memory that it can't get loose, and they use the same size stake when it's a giant elephant. It could easily pull that out. And so some of the things that, that we do in our life that keeps us from moving forward are the memory of what, how things worked or what I could not do in the past. It doesn't have to be something super sinful. It can just be something that says, I'm not adequate. I can't do it. You know, God doesn't love me. You know, most of the time when you're dealing with Christians, you know what you're going to be dealing with? You're going to be dealing with feelings of inadequacy in the, in their, in the other person. They just don't, I just don't feel like God loves me or God's mad at me now because, you know, I didn't read my Bible. I mean, it's crazy stuff, but remember, new Christians trying to get through something very, very basic. So what you want to do is you want to take them through a process, and the process goes something like this. What is it in your life that you continually battle 
that could possibly be a stronghold? Is it fear? Is it inadequacy? Is it depression, discouragement? What is it? Is it possible that that's what the enemy's using against you to keep you from moving forward in your spiritual life? And you try, you try really hard to battle it, but you seem to always get back to the same place. Hebrews says uh, something about a besetting sin. You know what that is? It's the sin that always trips you up. And you find yourself going, well, God, here I am again. I bet you're tired of hearing from me, God. Right? You ever said that? God, I bet you're tired of hearing me. And so what we want to do is say, God, I, I want to break that free. It may not be that at all. It may be something as simple as, uh, um, you know, let, let's suppose there's a 50-yard dash, okay? We're going to all run a race, okay? And we're all equipped to run that race, right? And we're all good athletes. Have I making enough assumptions yet? Okay. And all of a sudden, you go out there, and half of us are wearing those fishing boots, those hip waders. And the other half, you know, they got shorts on, they got lightweight Nike shoes, they're ready to run. And the judge comes out, and he's looking around, and he goes, what's with the hip waders? And somebody, you know, let's just say it's Ted, he's, he's pretty astute, gets a law, gets a rule, all that. he opens up the book, he said, I've read the entire book, there is nothing that prohibits hip waders. And the judge looks at it and says, you know, you're right. You can run in hip waders. Now, my bet is that the guys who win are not the guys in the hip waders. Would you, would you agree with me? Okay. Was there anything wrong with hip waders? No, not, that, not at all. But it wasn't beneficial in the race that they were getting ready to run. You see, some things are not sinful. They're just not beneficial. And we have to lay aside, here's what it says in Hebrews, lay aside every sin and watch this, and the weight that so easily besets us, that we might run the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What is it right now that slows you down? Can you put it aside? Can you set it aside and see what God can do? So sometimes that's all you have to do. Now, as we're going down through this, we want to say, hey, you know, there is, there, there is a, an idea of sin is missing the mark, Right? It's used of a, of a guy who takes an arrow and he shoots at the target and the arrow falls short. It doesn't hit the intended place. And what happens is when we, when we live in this world of, of you know, trying to please ourselves, what do we do? Sometimes we fall short of what God had for us. God had so much more for us, but we fell short of that. You know, sometimes it's breaking the rules. Sometimes it's taking the, you know, instead of standing behind the line and you're going to shoot 20 yards, you run up there and shoot 10 yards. And so sometimes sin is just breaking the rules. Sometimes it's trying to live in our own righteousness. Now, granted, this is not the most exciting lesson you're going to teach, right? Because it kind of gets down to where all of us live, eh, Ben? I mean, we all live with that. Have you, ever, you, ever, you ever been driving down the road and somebody cut you off and you thought something, maybe even said something, maybe even accompanied with a hand gesture? I know some of you are capable of it right? And you thought to, and the first thought was, why'd I do that? Why'd I react that way? You know, and then you just have, what do you do? You go back, you say, God, hey, I'm sorry. I don't know why I did that. And what you're doing is you always want to do course correction. So teach a disciple, how do you do course correction? Let, let that disciple know, hey, you know what? You're probably going to blow it once in a while. Don't worry about that as long as you do course correction and keep a short account with God. You know, have you ever thought about this? You know, well, I'm just going to confess all my sins at the end of the year. I mean, it doesn't even make sense, does it? First of all, because you can't remember a list that long, right? And secondly, you're, you're not dealing with it on a, on a moment-by-moment basis. How do I deal with this as I go? Now, the word confess, and this is in your book, the word confess means to agree with God. And, and really what we're doing is we're saying, God, I just want to agree with you about some stuff in my life. He said, that's all I wanted to hear. That's what I wanted to hear. I wanted you to agree. I want you to understand who you are and where you are because then I can take and I can use you in a powerful way. Uh, Paul reminds us in, uh, in this section that we're looking at here that we are in a battle, Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? Why? Because you want to win. You want to prevail. I think the only piece of armor that's missing here is something that covers the back. Have you noticed that in the spiritual battle? 
Because God doesn't want us running from the enemy. He wants us to stand. And then when he, remember when he uses that word word there, it's a, he says, you know, the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. He uses the word rema there. Just write that down next to, in that passage. It's R-H-E-M-A, rema. It means a word revealed from the word of God. If you're going to win the battle, you ha- God has to speak to you. You want to get something from God right there, okay? Um, let's look over in, uh, let's go over to page 64 and then turn in your Bible to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6, okay? Romans chapter 6. Now, I want to take you through, actually, you know what, I'm just going to take you through a quick run through of Romans, uh, a few chapters, that way you can kind of get a feel for what's going on here. Just, just go to, uh, we'll just go to Romans 3 and I'm going to take you on a little journey. You could do this with the whole book of Romans. Um, it's not, Romans is probably the best book to read because it, in, if you want to know the whole picture, because in Romans chapter one, and let me just give you the whole book, it'll be easier. Romans chapter one, it really talks about how do we come to know God when we've never had God revealed to us with a Bible. And it says, you know, the divine nature of God has been revealed in the things that are clearly made. So we're without excuse. Chapter two is how do we deal with it? How do we deal with our own conscience? How does God look at us? Now watch, chapter 3, he says, hey, guess what? The wages of sin is what? It's death. You know what death is? It's simply separation. And if you've lost someone, you know what you've done? You've been separated from them. They're not, they don't go out of existence. You've been separated in the physical world by that, right? So what happens is sin is my separation from God when I don't know him. So, so, so all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none that are righteous, no, not even one, right? Chapter 3. And then chapter 4, it says, well, let me talk to you a little bit about faith, and it uses Abraham. You know how faith, Abraham was justified before God? By faith. By faith. Chapter 5, you know what? You're probably looking at your life, and you're thinking, well, does God really love me? He says, oh, yes, he loves me. And we're not, you're not justified by, your, by your, works of, your good works. You're justified by faith in Christ. And let me show you, God demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Hey, this is good news. Now, chapter 6, this is where I want to take you. Chapter 6, and beginning in verse 1, he asks the question, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that, God, that grace may abound? In other words, just because there's a lot of grace, does that give you the right to continue in sin? No, because it's not beneficial. See, that's the whole thing. It's not because God's mad. It's just not beneficial to you as a believer. You're going to miss out on something in sin. And God doesn't want you or me to miss out on anything he has for us. And he wants us walking in the Spirit, walking in power. He wants all those things going on in our life. And so he's telling us here, are we going to continue to have this relationship with our sinful nature we had before we were saved? So here's a little key. First 11 verses, every time the word sin is used, it's used as a noun. This is key to understanding Romans. It's a noun. And a noun is what? This is the only thing we ever learned in English, all of us, right? Okay. It's not a verb. He's not talking about individual acts of sin here. He says he's talking about your sinful nature. And if you read it with that in mind, it'll make so much sense. What shall we say? Shall we continue in a relationship with our sinful nature? Certainly not. How can we who have died to sinful nature live any longer? Do you not know that as many of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together with him in a likeness of his death, certainly we shall be united together in his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, and that the body of this sinful nature might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to our sinful nature. For he who has died has been set free from his sinful nature. For now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now, you see, death will, will try to get your attention and distract you, but it never has dominion over you again. Because he's, he's paid the penalty for death, right? 
Okay. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life that he lives, he lives unto God. Likewise, reckon yourselves dead unto sin, uh, indeed uh, to the sinful nature, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus. So here's what I've got to do. I've got to teach my disciple, hey, you know what? You're going to find that your, your human nature and your tendency to, to do things in your own strength, you're going to find it's always coming back. And what are you going to do with it? You're just going to say, you know, it doesn't have dominion over me anymore. It's, you don't, I'm not, you're not my king anymore. You're not my king anymore. You know, um, many of you know um, our daughter, and Jen, um, when she was in high school, um, started um, getting on this strict regimen of, of exercise and diet. And she got down to like a double zero, okay, which for somebody like 5'7 is pretty thin, right? So she was thin, 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 and she, was, she looked great. Then she started doing some modeling and all the time didn't realize that she had an eating disorder. And she was literally killing herself little by little with an eating disorder. And coming out of that was such a, such a difficult thing because her mind was always telling her when she was, you know, 111 pounds or whatever she was, I'm heavy. I want you to know all of us have an eating disorder in the sense that we have that we look at ourselves with the wrong set of eyes. And we never look right to us. We never look holy to us. We never look righteous to us. And just like Jen will battle those thoughts her entire life, and just like she'll take big steps to make victory, and we'll do the same thing. But you see, we have to come to a place where I am who God says I am. I am not who I think I am. And if I don't start seeing myself who I am in Christ, I never can be all that he intends me to be. Sometimes it goes against the feeling and the very nature of man to see yourself as God sees you. To look in the mirror and say, I am a child of the living God. And I am loved whether I, whether I sin today or I do not. Whether I read my Bible today or do not. God has given me power and authority whether I understand how to use it or not. You see, I have to walk in truth before I can do truth. I have to walk in life before I can enjoy life. I have to say it so, as we are prone to say around here, in order for it to be so. I have to live it out. I have to work it out. I have to just keep reminding myself because why? I'm dealing with the old nature. I'm, dealing, I'm battling with the old man who's always trying to pull me back, bring me back, bring me down, bring me over here, and wants me to live not by faith because, see, another definition of sin is when we don't walk by faith. But when we walk by faith, what happens? God's able to do some pretty amazing things in our life. Amen? Okay. Um, let's go on and look a little bit more here. Um, go, to, um, go to page 65, and let's look at the second paragraph down. Since my sins are forgiven, am I free to do as I please, even to commit sin? Okay, some take the freedom we have in Christ as a license to sin. And they say, well, you know, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, what's the big deal? Now, I happen to believe, and I don't know if everyone in this room believes this, so I'm just going to tell you my position. We have a whole lesson on it. I believe that our, that our salvation is secure. That when you were saved, you were bought with a price. You're no longer your own. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of God unto the day of redemption. To put it another way, once you're saved, you're always saved. Now, some people believe that you can lose your salvation. Okay, the consequences of that are, you know, I never know when that's going to happen. And can I get it back? Can I get it back in time? You know, do I fall out of grace? Can I fall back into grace? And there's all those challenges that go on. And typically the basis for justifying that is, well, I knew this guy was really committed to Christ. He rejected God and now he's an atheist. That doesn't prove anything. That proves somebody had a story. It doesn't prove it theologically. So what we want to see here is understand this. Is my salvation secure? 
If I say, you know, I need to operate out of who I am. I am a child of God whose salvation is secure, and for all eternity, I'm going to be with him. You know what sin does? I love what Washington Nee says. He says that sin robs me of the joy that God wants me to have in this world. And it robs me of the blessings he wants us to have in the next world. That's really what it does. And so we want to be able to understand how do we set that aside? How, how do we use our freedom? The liberty you have in Christ gives you the freedom and the power to do what is right. It gives you the liberty and the power to do what is right. Your liberty in Christ is designed to lead you to repentance. Because God loves you, he leads you into repentance. He leads you in the right way. You see, there's two ways that God could act. One is he could be strong-fisted with you, and every time you did something wrong, crush your spirit and crush your heart and do all of that. Or he could say, you know, I love you, and and I think once you understand how much I love you, you're going to want to follow me. And that's grace, isn't it? That's the grace of God. Sin has consequences. We reap what we sow. We're never going to get away from it. If we sow sin, we're going to reap the consequences of sin. And so we say, you know what? I don't want to reap that. I want to reap righteousness. Um, the one, there are consequences for us. Our lives will be unfruitful since fruit results in, uh, you know, in abiding in Christ. When I abide in Christ, what do I do? I get the fruit of that. I get the goodness of that that comes out of me, okay? Um, we experience discipline when we sin. It says that God disciplines or corrects every son that goes against him. And if you be without chastisement, you be illegitimate. You know, you know one of the things when you feel like bad for your sin, you know what that does? That's a reminder that you're a child of God. That should be encouraging to you. I feel bad. That's good. If you don't feel bad, that's bad. If you can just do what you want to do, that's bad. It's good when you feel that. And you feel that weight on you, and you just go, God, I thank you for that weight. God, help me to do course correction in my life, would you? Sin is bad for us. Sin is a destroyer of us. Every believer will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to talk about that. That, that really sounds scary. When you read that to a, to a new Christian and maybe to some of you, and you say, gee, that sounds bad. I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Well, it's actually um, the judgment seat was actually the word bema. Just right next to that bema, B-E-M-A, B-E-M-A, and you'll find that reference there in 2 Corinthians 5.10. But what it means is it was the place where rewards were given. You know, in the Olympian, you know, when they bring the, the, the three guys up, three gals up who have won, and they put, you know, they got first place, second place, third place, gold, silver, bronze. Well, the idea was this was the place where rewards were given to the Olympians who competed and who won. And it's possible that in, in God's word, everybody will appear on that. Everybody's going to go up on the raised stage. But not everybody will receive the same reward. See, there's the difference. There is unmerited grace, but never unmerited rewards. Do you follow that? There is unmerited grace. God loves you. God forgives you. God holds nothing against you in his grace. But he doesn't reward you for a lack of diligence in your, in your life. He rewards diligence. He gives rewards. So there will be some, some great gifts given. There will be some great treasures in heaven given. But they'll be for those who, through faithfulness, have cultivated that life of God uh, on, a, on a regular basis. Okay, there are consequences for others. Uh, we cause fellow Christians to stumble in their faith. Uh, the word stumble means to sin. Um, I had a, when I was first uh, pastoring, I had a, had a mustache, had a really nice, big, burly mustache, you know, much nicer than Drew's over there, and um, had this big mustache, and a lady came up to me and said, I, you know, your mustache makes me stumble. And I, and I you know, I thought, well, oh, you, you mean it makes you sin? You sin when you see my mustache. She said, no, I just, you know, it makes me stumble. And so she was trying to use this scripture. And I said, well, that scripture means that I caused you to lose faith in God and sin against God. Does my mustache do that? She said, well, no, I just don't like it. <laughs> well, at least we got truth. We got the truth. You know, okay, I don't like mustache. And, and I was kind of a smart aleck in those days. I know. I know it's hard to believe. And I said, well, I think you would look much better in a mustache. And it caused me to stumble when you don't have one. 
And she started to laugh, and she got the whole point of the thing, you know? Um, so the idea is that some things, you know, if it's causing a person to lose their faith in God, that's not a good thing, right? And you want to guard against that. Um, people have used that concept all the time, you know, like if eating meat causes my, my neighbor to stumble, I will never eat meat again, right? Well, know the context when Scripture tells you that. It, that's the context in Corinth where what they were doing was they were taking meat that was offered unto idols, and you could buy discount meat at the local demon market. No, you really could. What would happen is they'd, the pagans would come in, and they would, they would you know, basically cast spells on and, and offer this meat up before demons, and then you could buy it at a discount rate because they had a lot of it because it was a pagan society. And some people who were weak in their faith thought if you ate that meat – that you ingested diamond, uh, demons. So the new Christians were saying, you know, when you eat that, you're going to get a demon inside of you. They were losing faith in God. They thought they could get possessed by an evil spirit by eating this demon meat. Now, you as a mature Christian know that that's not how that works, but you say, you know what? If that's going to keep you from God, if that's going to destroy your faith because you think your, your mature brother is filled with demons now, then I'm not going to eat that meat again. So always understand the context when, when Paul's giving you warnings and kind of giving you course corrections. Understand what he's doing. He's trying to help you understand, but understand the culture, right? How about, you know, it's a shame for a woman to have short hair, right? And so we had a whole generation, we have whole, whole denominations that grow up with the idea that women have to wear a veil or they have to wear a hat. And and many in many cases, you know, people were just uh, you know just oppressed by that. Or women say, "Well, you 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 can't have short hair. Short hair is relative compared to what, right?" And you know, some of the old school Pentecostal women, you know, you you know they've got the, it just keeps getting higher and higher and higher. You know, you just go, "Good Lord!" I mean, what's in there? Tower of Babel is on your head, lady. Um, because, but they're under a bondage because they don't understand that scripture. Let me give you what that scripture means so you can understand it because it explained in here. Um, what was happening in Corinth, and remember, most corrupt city in the New Testament world. Paul writes most of what he writes in, in the Corinthian letters to correct problems. That's primarily what he's trying to do. He's trying to fix what the goofy thoughts they have going on there. And so one of them was it's a shame for a woman to have short hair. Well, what, what they did in Corinth, it was considered a part of good civic duty for the women to go down to the local temple and serve as a prostitute to serve the pagan uh, priests. And what they would do in order to do that is they would shave their head. The women would. And all of a sudden, these women were doing what they had done. They have now become a Christian. They were showing up at church, and they had these shaved heads, and everybody goes, have you been out the local temple? serving as a prostitute for the pagan priests. He's trying to help them understand how do you get out of culture and into biblical Christianity. He's not trying to dictate the length of a woman's hair because that's relative, isn't it? Short to compared to what? So when you understand context, you understand culture, you can begin to function a little bit better in that whole world. All right. So helping people to understand that whole thing. But look down at uh, number two on page 66. Christ's love motivates us. You know what it always comes down to? The love of God. Doesn't it? Am I doing the most loving thing toward you that I possibly can? Are you doing the most loving thing you possibly could toward me? Are we loving one another and loving Christ with all of our heart? Because what is the one thing that Corinthians tells us never fails? Love never fails. What do I do? How do I deal with love? You know, when, whenever, you, whenever you push against something, that, that object, this rule of physics, says that, that's going to push back against me, right? There's a force. There's equal force that's coming back when I push. But what about when you love? What about when you love? So in society, when we love, now I recognize that there are just some really bad people in the world, and, and, and they're, not, they're not looking for love. 
Okay, you've got to know what the situation demands. But I want to tell you that the most effective thing you're going to be able to do in dealing with and helping people understand this concept we're talking about today is just teach them how to love. Every sin, every sin we ever commit is a violation of love. What's the great commandment? Jesus was asked, love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So every sin I will ever commit will be against either God, myself, or my neighbor. Every sin. You can't name one that's not. That's what I'm doing. I'm failing to love you. I'm failing to love myself, or I'm failing to love God. And that's why Jesus kept driving this point back. What's the great command? To love the Lord your God. If I love him, what, what do I do because I love him? What do I think because I love him? How do I react because I love him? And if, I've got, if I understand that God is a God of that kind of love, then I, I fall into a whole different category. Let me just give you an example. little kid can't keep his shirt tail in. Right? I am so glad that we've got away from always tucking shirts in, right, as a culture. But remember, you know, it, little children, you know, mom tucks her shirt in. They say, hey, you keep your shirt tucked in. You look better with your shirt tucked in. It takes him like two minutes to get the shirt out. And mom says, you never keep your shirt tail in. Why don't you keep your shirt tail in? Other boys keep their shirt tail in. You look nice with a shirt tail in. That shirt was not made to be worn out. That shirt was made to be put in. What's the problem? Can't you wear your shirt tail in? Now, you know what I just illustrated was a tape that goes on in our heads, isn't it? Now, whether you as a mother did that or not, or whether you as a child experienced that or not, that's not our main point. It's the process. Now I get the idea that my mother is what? An enforcer of shirt tails. <laughs> right? She is the enforcer of shirt tails. She's all about shirt tails. The most important thing in life is shirt tails. And I begin to view my mother as a shirt tail enforcer. And, even, and, and then everything I hear from her has the same tone. Everything, you know, like, why don't you finish your meal? You know, maybe you're full, right? Mom's never thought of that, right? Maybe you're full. I cooked that. I spent all that time with it, and you're, in, you're, you don't have, you're not grateful for all I did for you. And then, then they always drop the ultimate bomb, right? What about the children in China? You know? You know, I remember one time my mom said something to me like that. My dad said, well, let's send it to him. Wasn't that great anyway tonight? But why do I use that illustration? Because we get God in the same kind of box. God becomes the shirt tail enforcer in your life. God becomes the shirt tail enforcer in your life. I want to I close with this story, and then we're going to take a quick break. Um, my dad was uh, was in in uh, in the in the army, and and he spent a couple of years away from me in his assignment. And my mom, um, I didn't we didn't know where he was or what he was doing. And he was involved in the intelligence community, and he was actually um, just out of our life. We didn't see him for two complete years. Only later to learn that he was doing some crazy stuff in East Berlin. Okay, so when my dad came back, I was pretty young, and we had like the neighbors come over. And we kind of assembled the backyard. We were cooking hamburgers and hot dogs and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and, and I was standing behind my dad, and I was watching my dad carefully. My dad got a hamburger, and he put mustard on it. And I was standing there. I had a hot dog, and I hated mustard. You know, all kids that are young typically hate mustard. They love ketchup, right? They have, you have to transition into mustard, okay? So I'm sitting there, and I grabbed the mustard, and I put it on my hot dog. Now, why did I do it? Because my dad, right? Now, my dad didn't know that I didn't like mustard. I never told him. My dad didn't notice. Why would he? Why would that be important to him to, to, for me to put mustard on there and to try to copy him? He didn't, he didn't notice, and quite honestly, there was no reason. It, it was not his fault. But I was trying to identify with my father, but what I was really doing, I was learning a pattern in my life. I was developing a pattern 
of appeasement. And what I say is, I've eaten a lot of mustard in my life. I mean, in other words, I've put mustard on a lot of things. I've, I've, used, I've done things that really I didn't want to do to try to please somebody else. And it was a revelation. One night I was, I was thinking about this, and I thought, you know, I have eaten a lot of mustard in my life. That was one of the patterns. And it wasn't a sinful pattern. It was a pattern of wanting to feel loved and accepted. And so I did things, I put mustard on things to get that. I think things like that have to come by revelation. And maybe even now God has spoken to some of you and he's just said, you know, you do that, you know, or you have some, you're like a shirt tail thing or you're a mustard thing or something else or God's going to give you a whole new, whole new revelation. When you, when you act on revelation, it's life-changing. When you try to respond to law, it causes rebellion. Self-discovery, spirit discovery leads to life. Condemnation and law leads to death. So what you want to do in this whole process of not only kind of helping you but helping somebody else is saying, Spirit of God, would you just show me why do I think that way? Why do I act that way? Why do I feel that way? Is there a way that you could minister to me and show me something? Maybe a little truth like eating mustard. A little truth like a shirt tail hanging out. Do I repeat that? You know, we talk about generational sin. You know how generational sin comes mostly? It's not typically coming biologically. Most of it's coming by environment and observation. And we repeat that in the life of our children and they repeat it in the life of their children and their children's children, and they get the same mindsets that we had, and they develop into patterns of behavior, you know, and, and they don't know how to break out. And you've got you to help people learn how to break out by spirit discovery, by self-discovery, by the letting God talk to you. Amen? All right, so let's close uh, just a moment of prayer, and let's just take a little bit of time right now and ask God to just show us and speak to us before we break. Father, every one of us in here need to be, um, or we should say desire to be, a greater recipient of your love. And there's little obstacles, there's little barriers that keep us from your love, and some of them are self-imposed, some of them, they're there like mustard and shirt tails. And God, we can't really understand you because we're trying to function with a set of tapes that never did work anyway. And that's what it means. That's what Paul means when he talks about destroying those, those the, not, the arguments and the knowledge that rises up against God and not taking every thought captive. And I really believe, Spirit of God, there's some areas right now in all of our lives that you want to just open up with a little bit of revelation and show us how we can be set free. Just set us free, God, every one of us here. You speak, God. These are, these are things that maybe are so personal you don't have to share with anyone. It's just between you and God. But God's showing you maybe something about your growing up, something about, you know, your parents, something about the way you view God. And you just say, God, I, I was wrong. Just confess, I was wrong, God, in, in thinking that's how you were. I want to accept who you are and that you love me in spite of everything. And you want only good for me, God. Spirit of God, bring healing in those areas of difficulty. Spirit of God, just touch me in a way that I can touch others with this great truth. Now just take a second. I'm just going to be quiet for a minute. And just in your own heart right now, just talk to God and just give him a moment to speak to you. God, thank you for speaking to your children. Thank you that the revelation has begun. 
And whatever, whatever God has put in your heart, God will bring to fruition through his love. God will move mountains for you. The desires of your heart, God will give you. But he'll give it as you walk before him and you wait on him and you love him and you receive his love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back together. Okay, I don't have a watch on tonight, so I don't have a clue what time it is. So I just figured I'd go until you look tired. What time is it, anybody? Oh, pretty good. All right, take a break. <laughs> 